0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. C.S. Lewis tells a story about a schoolboy. The boy was once asked a simple question. What is God like? And after thinking for a moment, he replied that God is the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Amen? Don't say amen. (laughs) The boy's reply highlights A common attitude towards the Christian faith, doesn't it? Kind of a, if you want to be a good Christian, there are certain things you cannot do. These sorts of behaviors are off limits. Don't do them. And if you do them, everybody knows what? Everybody knows you're not a good Christian. A lot of times we think of that as a legalistic approach to Christianity, But the reality is, even if we're not, you know, kind of in the fundamentalist, legalist camp, so to speak, that's just kind of out there and obvious, most of us kind of, we have our standards. And when someone violates them, we know it, and sometimes we let them know it. And people end up feeling a lot like this little boy. Sometimes we end up a lot acting like like the God he thinks, the one he thinks God is. The sort of person snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And it's true that Christianity involves prohibitions, involves certain things that are inappropriate, off limits for believers. After all, Jesus did say in the Gospels, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. There are certain things and certain behaviors and certain attitudes that should not characterize the people of God. The Apostle Paul gives us extensive lists, just like in Ephesians 5. Here are the sorts of things that it's not appropriate for saints, Christians, to talk about or even do or associate with those who do. So there are things that are off limits. The problem comes when we is when the problem arises when we think Christianity is merely or exclusively about the no-nos and not about a positive vision of human life the problem comes when we define the thing by what it's not exclusively instead of saying here's what comes in replacement We don't just give something up without taking something else up. We don't say no to one character of life without embracing another character of life. To use Paul's language in Ephesians 5, we don't resist the darkness without stepping into the light. A good nutritionist would tell us if you're going to go on a diet and give up certain things you need to be sure that you're getting the appropriate kinds of nutrition and eating the right kinds of food you don't just say no to one thing and define something by what it's not when it comes to the christian faith you have to define it by what it is and the positive whole good things that the lord jesus christ desires to do in his people and so for paul Yes, Christianity is in part defined by the absence of some behaviors and attitudes. But that's not the whole story. It's also defined by the good things that God wants to reproduce in the lives of his people, not on occasion, but consistently at every moment. For Paul, we wake from sin for something else, and that something else is worship. We wake from sin in order to walk in worship, and that's the progress that you find in Ephesians 5, and we'll trace it through as we read it together carefully today. We know Paul likes contrast, and he frequently, in many of his letters, contrasts pagan life, the old life, unbelieving life, with life in Jesus or life in the Spirit, doesn't he? And that's what we find at the end of Ephesians 4, the old life and the new. Don't live like this. Do live like this. That continues into the beginning of Ephesians 5. Don't live like this. Do live like this. And the things he says are things that we've become accustomed to hearing Paul say. He talks about different kinds of sins and self-indulgences, fornication, impurity of any kind, sexual sin. He talks about greed. He talks about idolatry. He talks about obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. And again, if we sort of make a list and focus on the thing, then we're not quite landing where Paul lands. Because throughout his letters, Our behaviors are manifestations of character and manifestations of identity. The goal here is to move from an identity or a character or a lack of character marked by self-indulgence, whether it's illicit or whether it's greed or whether it's talk that serves my ends and not Yours, or the churches, or the Lord's. Right? The focus here with all of these behaviors, the thing that underlies them is, this is self-serving. This is self-gratifying. And if you spend much time in the ancient world, you would know that the entire society in the Greco-Roman world was marked by two major categories. Honor and shame. And if you could get one over on somebody in any one of these categories, any one of these categories, whether it's sexuality or a public debate, whether it's the accumulation of physical goods and resources or property or whatever, the more of that kind of thing you have and the more power you display, the more honor you get. That can be difficult for us to understand because honor and shame aren't really the primary categories for us. We think more in terms of like freedom and innocence. Freedom versus slavery or innocence versus guilt. And so it's difficult for us to kind of slide back into these other dominant categories. But if you could spend time with the Ephesian church, you would know that these sorts of behaviors that Paul is talking about were ways that powerful people gained honor amongst themselves. And Paul is saying there's a certain kind of character there, a certain kind of self-oriented, self-gratifying, self-promoting worship. And that's the sort of thing, and the behaviors that issue forth from it, that sort of idolatry is the sort of thing that is inappropriate, he says, Among the saints, and saints is His word for believers, Christians, church. So don't be associated with that. If you like images, He says, that's darkness. It's night. It's like being asleep, like Jesus is doing things and you're taking a nap. You're missing out. You're not experiencing the good things he has for it. And if we're, if we're not careful, and if the Ephesians aren't careful, they might feel like the little boy that Lewis talks about. You know, I'm trying to have a good time, and I just want to party, and, you know, I've got things I do, and i got friends calling me, and somebody's texting me, and they want me to come out and meet them somewhere. And we got, you know, we're getting together this weekend, and, yeah, things may get a little, you know, but it's just fun. And Paul says, like, take just a second and think. Is this wise or foolish? Is this self-gratifying or does it honor God? And for Paul, that doesn't mean you get legalistic and you write out a list and, you know, you're just holy because you don't do what they do. For him, that misses the boat too. We'll see how that works out in just a few minutes. It's not about the do's and don'ts primarily. Those are there that they're in, in, in more, they're more like evidence of character. What sort of character do I have? Is it a character marked by darkness or marked by light? Is it a character marked by self-gratification and self-worship, idolatry, or is it a character marked by self-giving love, like Jesus? And so you get this big contrast, marked primarily by darkness and light, and people who are in the darkness are asleep for Paul, and people who are in the light are awake for Paul. And the goal of, the, like the thing that Jesus wants to do is move people from sleeping in the darkness to waking in the light. And that's the big metaphor, and that's the big contrast, that's the big difference, that's the big distinction. And you come to this crucial turning point in verse 14. Where Paul is declaring, just before this verse 11, take no part in these unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. Like, you're doing these things, and it's all just a self-oriented thing. Like, name it, call it what it is, and don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Take no part, he says, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Verse 11, now verse 12. It's shameful. Even to mention, notice the shame language. And he's taking those first century categories, honor and shame. Where if you can, you know, get one over on somebody in an argument, then you gain honor, even if they are shamed. Other kinds of intimate relationships, honor and shame. Conquest was the kind of attitude that shows up in those kinds of scenarios. And the one who gains the conquest gains the honor. Paul says those things are actually shameful. He takes the ancient category and turns it on its head in light of Jesus. The light exposes the shame of that sort of behavior. Everything in the light becomes visible. And therefore, Paul says you've got this declaration, and it sounds like he's quoting a hymn sleeper, awake, rise from the dead in Christ will shine on you. The Messiah will shine on you. And there's this critical moment that comes there in verse 14 with this this hymn or this song that he's singing. Wake from the dead. And it gives you this pivotal moment that everyone in the world needs to experience. A movement from darkness to light, from sleeping to waking. I'm going to say let's dig into that a little bit more carefully. What is this? Like Who's the sleeper? How do I know if I'm in that place? Charles Wesley had a whole sermon asking that question. (laughs) Who's the sleeper that Paul is addressing himself to? And he had a lengthy, detailed answer, but in short, he basically said the sleeper is a person who's in their natural state apart from Christ. And this is consistent across Paul's letters and the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, he uses this kind of language to talk about people who have not yet come into a relationship of life-giving love with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a person in their natural state before the voice of God awakens him or her to new life in Christ. It's the state in which all of us come into the world. It's the state in which every person who's ever lived comes into the world. Everybody starts out asleep. For Paul. Everybody starts out in the darkness. For Paul. Nobody comes into the world neutral. You know, I'm doing all right, and I get a choice free, clear, no like constraints on my freedom. Like the Bible never talks about anyone like that. Everyone comes into the world, to use Charles Wesley's language, bent to sin. His brother John. Said in another sermon, in our natural state, no one loves God. Says we'd rather love a rock than God in the natural state, and that's a bit off-putting, isn't it? We like to think a little better of ourselves. You know, we're good people. We come from a good family and a good part of, you know, the good neighborhood and we're upstanding. And, and then, you know, Wesley comes along and says, your, your, heart, your heart is like a stone and you'd rather love a stone than God in your natural state. But if we're wise and if the Spirit of God is at work, we will hear those words. And so for those who are in that natural state needing to be awake, awaken, The Scripture declares that that Jesus is calling in the gospel. Wake up. For those who have been awakened, give thanks for the grace of God in your life, carrying you from that natural state of darkness into the light. Wesley goes on, "The, the person who is asleep is satisfied in his sin Take a minute and think through that a minute Are there areas in my life where I what like sin is there like there's darkness I, Jesus is trying to get to it I've been ah, I'll just keep that to myself thanks very much Jesus Sati- I'm, I've got this place of sin in my life, and I'm satisfied with it. Wow. Wesley says, you could put it this way, the sleeper is diseased, but thinks he's healthy. Diseased, but thinks he's healthy, and won't come to the great physician for healing. says the sleeper doesn't see his need for Jesus. Yeah, I've heard about Jesus, but I'm good. I've heard about the gospel, I've heard about the church, but, I, you know, things are going pretty well for me right now. And this is, a, I think, friends, very appropriate for the world we live in how many people do we know who just think, like, I hear about the church, I just don't see why it's important. I hear about Christians, I don't know what you, like, I don't see that you have any positive contribution to my life. I'm doing pretty good as it is. I meet people like this. They may not think the church is just harmful. Some people think the church is harmful. They may not think that it's just a gone off the rails. I just like, I'm good. I don't need this. Some of you are getting ready to go off to college. You're going to meet a lot of people like that. Some of you are going to find yourself in the halls of a high school. You're going to meet a lot of people like that. Yeah, It's cool. I go to church sometimes. It doesn't really shape everything. It's not relevant. It hasn't changed my life. You know it hasn't changed because the kind of stuff Paul talks about at the beginning is there. It's self-oriented, self-driving character. Wesley says that the sleeper does not see his need for Christ. He is content to remain fallen. What a way to put it. Here's fallenness far from God. Happy with that. This, for Wesley, involves abiding in death. Now, nobody (laughs) talks about themselves that way. But it's crucial for us to be wise and discerning And it's probably not helpful to go up to someone maybe who you kind of think is asleep and talk this way. Hey, you're abiding in death and obviously content with your fallenness. (laughs) But it is crucial to embody and articulate a life that demonstrates and proclaims that Jesus offers more. And Jesus offers a wholeness that isn't there presently. Jesus offers light and life. So Paul says, sleeper awake. Now, this sleeper syndrome, if we can call it that, manifests itself in a couple of ways. And some are more obvious than others, Wesley says. He says some people are just outwardly vicious. They outwardly and obviously do not have lives that are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Maybe we know some people like that. Maybe we work with some people like that. More problematic, perhaps, are not the outwardly vicious, but the outwardly religious. (laughs) Remember, these are the kind of folks that Jesus looked at and said, you know, things are great on the outside, but on the inside, your heart is like a casket. Whitewashed tomb. Looks all great and presentable, but on the inside, there is death and rot. Which says These are the kind of folks who go to church. They take communion. They give. They may even teach Sunday school. They show up on service days, bring their Bibles to church, because everybody knows you're not a serious Christian if you don't bring your Bible to church, and you got to show them, right? says so there's this sort of thing where there's all this outward performance and showmanship, but inside, this person, Wesley says, is asleep. That's where it gets tough, isn't it? That's where it gets very difficult. And that's, again, Paul making the point and Wesley picking up on it that behaviors are symptoms. They are not the heart of the matter. Because you can act pious and you can act righteous and you can act like a Christian without being one. You can act like someone who walks in the day and still be asleep. And that sort of false piety is stunningly dangerous. The Wesleys encountered it in the 18th century Church of England. People who worshipped just so everyone would know they're good people. And it's also a problem in the Bible Belt. It's hard to get on the city council if you don't go to the right church in some towns. It's hard to get elected to anything. It's hard to get the right business contacts if you don't go to the right church. And so we we, we do these kinds of things... But the point isn't really Jesus. The point is, like, if I'm going to be the right kind of Bible-built person, i got to go to the right places and do the right kinds of things and serve on the whichever committee. And everybody needs to know it so that I can get the right clients. And all of us have experience with that the 21st century bible belt isn't that different from 18th century church of england in that respect to all of us paul says wake up wake up this is not for show it's not for business deals it's not for self aggrandizement it's not for gaining honor not that sort anyway, it's for Jesus. And to the sleeper, the apostle says, rise from the dead. And we begin to see how deeply Easter has infiltrated and shaped the Christian faith in its earliest days that what happened to Jesus on Easter morning, we're still in Easter season, what happened to Jesus on that first Easter defines the Christian life. So that before we come into union with Christ, we are in darkness like a tomb, we are asleep, and God in Christ through the Spirit must bring us to life and awaken us and make us new. Bring us out of that grave, out of the tomb. It is a work of grace if we ask how the sleeper is awakened. (laughs) Dead people don't resuscitate themselves. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. Dead people have no power, no capacity, no ability to initiate any sort of healing process. It's all grace if a dead person arises. And if a sleeper awakes, it is the kindness of God. It is the kindness of God. And the kindness of God is described in this passage as Christ shining on. That's not the kind of God that the little boy described in the story from Lewis. It's not a God who's sort of hanging out around the corner with a switch, just waiting to crash your party and put a stop to your fun. It's a God who wants to give you abundant life. Like everywhere Jesus went in the Gospels, he was throwing parties problem was he was doing it with all the wrong people. And again, that's the movement, isn't it? When the gospel is preached, when the kindness of God in Christ who died for us and who was raised for us is declared, the Spirit goes to work and brings people to life. Makes us whole and wakes us up and the darkness becomes apparent and He brings us into the light of His perfect love. And the consequence of that for Paul is that, verse 15, be careful how you live. Don't waste time. Make the most of your life. Don't be unwise. Be wise. The days are evil. You see that. There's darkness out there. And he doesn't want Christians, 1st century or 21st century, aligning ourselves with that. Instead, there is a distinctiveness that must characterize the Christian life. There is a different character of life, a different different priorities, different values. And Paul says, instead of sort of like, you know, frittering away time on the sorts of things he describes in verse 3 kind of illicit relationships and illicit speech. It's kind of wasting time on that sort of thing, he says. Instead, make the most of the time. Like every opportunity, and this is a crucial reminder for us, isn't it? That Jesus is not simply interested exclusively or only in you know a few hours on Sunday morning and maybe a little time on Wednesday night if we've got space in the calendar. Like every moment of every day. His lordship, his kindness, his mercy and his grace. Infiltrate our lives. Make the most of every moment. Make the most of the time. There's this comprehensive work that Jesus desires to do. 24-7. Like make the most of the time doesn't mean except on Friday. Or except on Friday night. Make the most of the time means Jesus is Lord all the time. and Whether I'm working or whether I'm in recreation or whatever it may be, is the character of Jesus being reproduced in my life and body? If it's not, I'm wasting my time if it's not i'm wasting my life like if the character of jesus is not being reproduced in my body i am wasting my life imagine what the church would be like if we took that seriously i doubt there would be anyone saying i'm not sure how that's relevant <laughs> For Paul, the positive, defining reality of the Christian life is worship. Striking how you've got all these imperatives. Make the most of the time. Be wise. Understand the will of the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. None of that is in isolation. It is in verse 19, as you sing psalms. As you sing hymns, as you sing spiritual songs among yourselves, making melody to the Lord in your hearts, what's he talking about? He's talking about the gathered worship of the people of God. He's talking about the sort of thing we've done today. There's no transformation outside of the corporate body of Christ gathered to worship. For Paul, there's no such thing as a solo Christian, a lone ranger Christian. There's no such thing as, you know, I'm a Christian all by myself and me and Jesus got my own thing going. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I, I, you know, I've got my own spirituality, but I don't go to church. I don't care about the institution. I don't want to go... Like, there's all those people, and they have expectations. I just do it my way. If we're isolated from that, it's a big world out there, and there's a lot of that kind of thing. <laughs> if that's unfamiliar to you, it's out there, I promise. For Paul, the, the, the kind of serious, radical transformation... That is different. The difference between darkness and light only happens in the context of the gathered church worshiping Jesus in song, prayer. You get a glimpse of that with this sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. They they certainly sang the psalms, and apparently they created new hymns about the resurrection of Jesus and applied them to their lives and sang, and celebrated what God was doing in Jesus. And they gathered, and they shared meals. Occasionally, those meals went off the tracks. (laughs) And so Paul says, like, don't get drunk. And you might think, like, he's talking about drunkenness and worship all in the same paragraph. If you read 1 Corinthians 11, uh, you'll discover that sometimes the Lord's Supper gatherings got a little crazy. And uh, Paul admonishes the Corinthians because the wealthy benefactors who brought the food and the wine are getting drunk, and the poor, who they aren't going to eat if they don't eat when they gather with the church, have nothing. He doesn't say you ought to be teetotalers, same thing here. He's not a legalist. He's not saying, hey, cut that out, bring the Welches. (laughs) He just says, like, moderate folks. Don't be fools. Don't be selfish. Make sure the guy who doesn't have anything has some. And don't consume so much that you have no idea where you are or what you're doing, because the point here is the worship of Jesus. This is what I mean when I I say like Paul is not a legalist. He's not over there with his list of rules saying, don't do this and don't do this. He's, don't do this. He's saying like, look, Jesus is trying to form a character in you. He's trying to form his character in you. So don't do things that hinder that. So you get all this language. Like, don't be foolish. Understand the will of the Lord. Don't be unwise. Be wise. Don't allow drink to steal your wisdom or your mind, but give yourself to the spirit and if you're not giving yourself to the spirit in worship you are wasting your life we awake from sin brothers and sisters to walk in worship we do not define christianity just as what it is not it is defined by all of the beautiful things that it is god in his grace and in his mercy looking upon Sinners who have spat in his face and denied him and rebelled against him and welcoming us into his family. Not just to forgive our sins so that we can stay in the mud and the mire, but to make us whole so that we can be whole. To bring us into a relationship of life-giving love with him so that his character permeates our minds and our thoughts and our hearts and our mouths and our behavior so that yes there is a difference a big difference a radical difference but it cannot the christian faith cannot be reduced to a list whether it's the no-nos or the do thises The Christian faith is about a character transformation and the character is Jesus's. And yes, that will manifest itself in a different sort of life. Have you noticed how the passage begins and ends with the language of gratitude? Instead of vulgar talk Paul says instead be speaking words of thanksgiving verse 4 verse 20 as you sing give thanks to God gratitude to God for life for his church for redemption is the mark of the awakened life. And it is the antidote to selfish idolatry. When I find myself seeking my own ends, if by the grace and the power and kindness of God, the Spirit can shift me into a posture of worshipful gratitude to God for His grace and His kindness, that's the difference that's what it looks like to be wakened from sin to walk in worship we give thanks to you oh God we give thanks for your love for Jesus for the church for the mission for all of these things we give thanks we don't resent our calling, we don't resent our circumstances. These, these, like, <laughs> we talk a lot about the challenges of being a Christian these days. You see that on the news. Like, <laughs> Imagine being 20 or 30 people in a room, in somebody's house, in the Roman Empire, where before too long, if you mess around and they find out you're a Christian, you might get strung up and lit on fire in Caesar's garden and used as a lamp for his path. Not easy. You, what? You don't go worship Asclepius anymore? Like You don't revere the Roman gods anymore? There will be consequences for that, even if it's not like empire-endorsed persecution. If you don't go worship the God your neighbors worship, guess who looks at you down their nose and maybe won't invite you over anymore? (laughs) Guess who's not going to call you to the next contract negotiation? Guess how hard it's going to be to actually get some income to feed your family when the tools and the resources you use to do your trade, the lumber or the... The metal or whatever it is involves the worship of the patron deity who provides those things. This is Paul calling for a radical transformation of life and a radical trust in Jesus. And he says to them, don't waste your time, don't waste your life, make the most of it, give it to the Lord Jesus Christ and He will shine on you. You Try to hedge your bets. Darkness. So what is God like? Is he the sort of God (laughs) snooping around looking for people having fun, just trying to put a stop to it? Cosmic killjoy. If that's the way we see the one who loved us and gave himself for us, then we probably need to be brought into the light. At least some new light is God-like? God is not a killjoy. God is joy himself. God doesn't break us. God is wholeness. Union with Christ and the presence of the Spirit is participation in the perfect love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have together for eternity. There is no joy or wholeness or happiness comparable to or greater than that. And passages like this are an invitation to experience the beauty, of the light, of that sort of perfect love. So I'll end with a question. What's your God like? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.